This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, the prolific radical professor Joy James speaks out on decolonizing the Black movement in the United States. Dr. James urges activists to condemn the militarization of U.S. African policy, as well as militarized policing in Black communities in this country. And Great Britain, which grew rich through centuries of global looting and mass enslavement, is now eager to deport thousands of Black residents as morally unfit to reside in the United Kingdom. But first, the United States and Europe are the wealthiest nations in the world, but have done very poorly in coping with the year-long COVID-19 epidemic. So have most of the former white settler colonies of Latin America. Layla Brown Vincent is a professor of Africana Studies at the University of Massachusetts at Boston and author of a recent article titled, The Pandemic of Racial Capitalism, Another World is Possible. She says that Cuba showed early in the epidemic that its practice of socialist internationalist medicine is the global gold standard. What I began to notice very, very early on, you know, even as the first lockdown was taking place in March, I remember there was a cruise ship in the Caribbean Sea that no one would allow to dock because there had been a COVID outbreak on the cruise ship. And the only country that would allow the cruise ship to dock was Cuba. And one of the things that was interesting to me very early on was why the Cuban government decided to allow that ship to dock. And part of what I came to understand was because of Cuba's long commitment to, I think, preventative health care, to understanding the ways in which health operates without the benefit of the latest technology, and also because I think that the socialist or communist orientation of the Cuban revolution means that there is a particular kind of value for life, the Cuban government made a decision to allow that cruise ship to dock, and I think partially because they knew that they had the capacity to handle it without it necessarily spreading to the larger Cuban population. And, you know, the reason why they were able to do that is because of the long handle that they've had on medicine in Cuba to begin with. And so when I started to look at what was happening with COVID, most of my research prior to that moment had been in Venezuela with some connections to Cuba. I was really interested in the Afro-Venezuelan population's support for the Bolivarian Revolution under Hugo Chavez and later Nicolas Maduro, I was really interested in the different ways that Venezuela and Cuba handled the onset of the pandemic in very different ways than the U.S., than Brazil, than even South Africa, which is where I was at the time. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed very early on was that before Cuba or Venezuela had even 100 cases of COVID, they had already began to implement public measures to ensure not just the physical, medicinal safety of the population, but also basic things like 
ensuring that people would not be evicted from their homes, ensuring that people would not lose their jobs, ensuring that people would continue to have access to health care. And, you know, the difference we see in the U.S. is that there's still, you know, people thought things would be so different when Biden got elected. And he's already, you know, walked back many of the things that he promised, basic things on the domestic front in terms of student loans. And so what I, you know, began to find is that what I began to argue, to under, and which is something that I feel like I already understood prior to that, is that the logics of capitalism do not allow for us to think about the value of human life first. The logic of capitalism makes us always look and think about profits. And this is why in the U.S. and Brazil, even as early as late March, early April, they were attempting to reopen the general economy rather than putting forth programs that would ensure that people could both remain physically safe and well in a holistic sense in terms of maintaining housing, access to health care, all of those things. Yes, it appears that racial capitalism is incapable of responding to these kinds of crises like COVID-19. For example, the corporate media and politicians all talk all the time about the heroicism of essential workers, like subway workers and garbage men and others, but they don't do a damn thing to improve their material condition or their safety. Not at all. Even in the way that we sort of operate, it's really interesting because I think that there are even some of the ways that because we've continued to push and push this sort of consumerist economy, we've all become as a society accustomed to needing to eat out in other kinds of ways, right? Not necessarily continuing to be able to take care of ourselves at a grand sort of level in terms of subsistence, which then means that people like subway workers and McDonald's and whatever become essential employees. And then they, prior even to this COVID moment, are the sort of worst paid, are already working in poor conditions, and are easily expendable on top of that. And so it's it's really interesting to think about people in the food service industry as essential workers when their lives are really already dictated by the kind of precarity that racial capitalism thrives on. So there's the contradiction within the contradiction, that those workers who are deemed now essential are the most expendable. Exactly. And so what is therefore the correct political response to the behavior of capitalism under COVID uh, in the glare of millions of people's eyes? You know, I think... Again, like I said, the reason why I was really interested in what was happening in Cuba and Venezuela is that it's not even, you know, here we are a year later, and it's not even just that their initial policies worked to ensure the sort of safety of the the larger population. But on top of that, you know, because of Cuba's longstanding sort of medical diplomacy program, as COVID was really ravaging Italy um, and parts of Western Europe, where the populations are much older, Cuban doctors were among the first to land there and to help fight back the pandemic. The same in South Africa when I was there. Cuban doctors were very much a part of, particularly in the more rural areas, helping to establish types of protocols that would save the population. But even in their own populations, I think the last time I looked at numbers, I think Cuba had less than 300 deaths 
in this entire year related to COVID. And I believe Venezuela had less than 15 or around 1,500 deaths. And I think in the, in the Cuban case, um, you know, the healthcare system has been that way for quite some time. And they have unfortunately had to figure out really how to adjust to the inhumane sanctions and blockade that has been imposed on them. But I think Venezuela's in a slightly different, in a slightly different predicament because the sanctions are somewhat newer and I don't think they have developed the same kinds of resilient practices that Cuba has. And so Venezuela has actually really been struggling under the recently imposed sanctions by Trump that are, you know, continued to be supported under Biden's administration. And so I actually think that in the case of Venezuela, with the declining oil industry, with all of the, I think, kind of political unrest inside of the particular government at the moment, as the U.S. government continues to try to impose the farce of Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela, I think the fact that Venezuela, in spite of all that, has only had 1,500 deaths in a population of about 30 million, really, I think, speaks to the way in which the government values this population in a way that, you know, we've already in the U.S. reached half a million deaths in relation to COVID-19. And so, I mean, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I find interesting about this is people's unwillingness, I think, to even see what that means in the grand scheme of things. And I think the contradiction becomes even more interesting as the vaccines begin to roll out, because the vaccines that are in play right now in the U.S., we've been told that they don't necessarily guarantee we won't transmit the virus. They don't necessarily guarantee that we won't even contract the virus. What they do claim to promise is that it will make the virus less severe, severe if you contract it. Whereas Cuba is in the process of developing, I think, four different vaccines at the moment. And one of the interesting things about Cuba's vaccine trials is that one, because the healthcare system is also run in conjunction with the state, they were able to sort of put all of their resources and concerns into the development of the vaccine. But I think that what's even more interesting about that is that Cuba's low number of contractions, and because I think even in terms of contraction rate, it was only something around 40,000 people in the population had even contracted COVID. But they have still maintained their commitment to developing these vaccines that they are not even able to fully run through trials in Cuba because they don't actually have enough of a sick population, right? And so a part of what's happening with the trials at the moment is they've had to go into agreements with Iran to be able to test the vaccine. And so what I am able to extrapolate from that is that Cuba's commitment to developing vaccines is not even about a primary preoccupation with the Cuban population, but it is actually in my understanding, their commitment to helping to control this global pandemic in a way that I haven't seen any of the Western European, U.S., or capitalist countries of the world attempt to do. Many of us have become accustomed to Cuba accomplishing medical miracles after 60 years of practicing socialist medicine, but maybe Venezuela is even more an educational study, because Venezuela, although it has a socialist government, does not have a socialist system. And yet, it has a wonderful record in terms of its response to COVID. And what Venezuela shows is that even a country that is beleaguered by U.S. sanctions can make 
considerable headway against a pandemic if it has socialist intentions. Absolutely. I mean, I think that for me, the piece that you referenced earlier that I wrote was really just about calling attention to that. I think that, you know, we're still in the middle of this pandemic. And I think that it's really important that we, those of us who really care about the preservation of life and people, look to the examples of places that are actually handling the pandemic in the most humane way at the moment. And based on what I've seen, the people who have handled, by and large, the countries that have been able to handle the pandemic in more humane ways, even if they're not entirely socialist countries, tend to have engaged in more communal logic than what we see dominate the U.S. or Western European or violently capitalist, racially capitalist societies. And so I think that in the moment, for me, one of the reasons why I even titled the the piece that I wrote, The Pandemic of Racial Capitalism, Another World is Possible, is because it's literally just a nod to saying that in, in this moment, we have to be looking at and observing the successes and the failures. And we have to make decisions about how we move forward as a global population based on what we see playing out. And I think that what we see is that the primary way in which racial capitalism, neoliberal capitalism functions, in addition to the necessity of exploiting people, that it's a technology of death. And I think that looking at what has happened in Cuba and Venezuela I would hope at least convinces critically minded person that perhaps these socialist governments have some technologies and some commitments to life that we need to figure out how to replicate elsewhere. You raised the question in one of your essays, and I don't think it's a rhetorical one. You ask, could it possibly be that COVID-19 is the critical turning point in the demise of capitalism that Marx predicted so long ago? Yes. I mean, I think that seeing this in this moment, and, you know, even when we return to the sort of moment of George Floyd's death in uh, last summer, and we saw the number of protests in solidarity around the globe. And I think for me, a part of what I read into that moment was that it wasn't, I mean, I think that, you know, for a while now we have been able to, because of technology, see what's happening in different places. We saw a similar kind of global outcry after the death of Michael Brown, but I think what made the moment of George Floyd's death particularly salient was the COVID moment. It was because people were, for the most part, in government-imposed lockdowns, which I think made people more acutely aware of their relationships to whatever state they belong to. And I don't actually believe that the solidarity protests all around the world were about George Floyd. I believe that the solidarity protests all around the world were about the connections people were making with what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and the list goes on and on, was also about making particular kinds of connections to the kinds of experiences of deprivation, exploitation, and abuse that people were experiencing in their own home governments. And so I think that these moments, when we see these moments of global unrest, we would do ourselves 
a disservice to only see that as a response to George Floyd. I really believe that that's the moment that we have to continue to build on because I think that that's a moment of the global masses of people questioning the state of being, our state of life. And I, I constantly hear people saying, I can't wait you know, until the pandemic is over so we can go back to life as normal. And, you know, in my opinion, normal wasn't so great for the vast majority of us. And if we don't take this particular moment when we've had the opportunity to pause for a second and say, maybe that's not a reality that we want to return to, if we don't take advantage of this moment, we will be in the same place we were prior to this moment. So the only other thing that I will say that also I think helps me think about what that moment of global unrest was also about was that the fact that I was in South Africa at the moment and there were, I don't know how many people followed what was happening in South Africa in terms of lockdown measures, but South Africa was one of the few countries in the world that attempted to impose an alcohol and cigarette ban as a part of their so-called measures to protect against COVID. And their, their logic being that alcoholism is a major problem, when people drink, they get into accidents, fights, instances of domestic violence, they clog the hospitals and emergency rooms. And so by banning alcohol and cigarettes, you know, they would be freeing up room in the hospitals. Now, what was particularly contradictory about this moment is that there were two men very early on, I think late March and early April, one of whose name was Collins Kosa, and the other was Petrus Miggles. One was in Johannesburg area, and the other was in the Cape Town area. And these two men were brutally beaten to death by South African police for having alcohol on their person, which under any other particular moment is not even a finable offense let alone an arrestable or an offense punishable by death. And so the particular ways in which the lockdown exposed the persisting violence of settler colonialism in South Africa was particularly eye-opening for me at the moment, given the fact that I saw more about George Floyd's death on many news outlets when I was in South Africa than I did about those two men that I just mentioned. And so I think that it's important for us to even pay attention to the ways in which these types of problems are often cast as if they are external to whatever particular place where people are located and understand that, you know, a part of what creates this type of state repression is the ways in which the state relates to capital and to, and to people and to racialized bodies. And that, that is still a continuation of the legacies of slavery and colonization. That was Dr. Layla Brown-Vincent, speaking from the University of Massachusetts at Boston. In celebration of International Women's Day, the Decolonial Feminist Collective recently hosted an online interview with Dr. Joy James, the prolific author and professor of humanities at Williams College. The talk was entitled, Radicalizing and Decolonizing Feminism. Dr. James says the subject has revolutionary roots. The origins really start with German socialists, right? And later right. picked up by Russian women, you know, who are talking about feeding their kids. I mean, the whole thing about being the maternal that has to reproduce life, but nurture it, right? We're, I'm not just reproducing laborers, right? Mm -hmm. Or workers or somebody to be exploited or sex traffic, right? right. So right. it grows from over a century ago its root is in workers' rights. Right. Now, at the time, 
they don't have to deal with white supremacy. I mean, because it's it's turning as a European formation. So Lenin thinks the revolution can't happen. He's in exile. And it's women who, the women peasants, so the agricultural workers, laborers, who throw down and say, even though the trade unionists, the official men in power say, this is the wrong time to strike. They're like, got to feed my kids, take care of my family, we're striking. And that's when Lenin comes back because they jumpstart the revolution. Now we can talk about the trajectories, what got messed up, how you lose people's power. But this is, I think, the Trojan horse tradition of bourgeois feminism. In, especially in the academy, it's continuously de-linked from workers and laborers. And there were the intellectual powerhouse that created this moment, right, that we keep reinventing every year. So to use them only as raw resource or data, and to think that the intellectual can cultivate the data or process it almost like it's a factory of intellectualism, is another form of exploitation. Right. But we just don't acknowledge that feminists can exploit women and families because only patriarchs and males are supposed to be doing that. But under capitalism, anybody can accumulate. Like we all know what a pimp is, right? I, I'm assuming. And we all know that they're women pimps, right? right? So we could say that these industries are dominated by males, but that doesn't mean that there aren't ungendered, female-gendered people who are willing to pimp movements, pimp content, pimp personal narratives, right. suffering. Mm -hmm. And then, then the thing is, if the pimps in your community are even like living upstairs from you, like in your in your grandma's part of the house, right? You're gonna have to figure out how to have a conversation to stop this form of harm. Right. So I always see it like we're facing predators. We have the internal, you know, cause we're human, this pro proclivity to accumulate more wealth than we need, prestige, which is just like a mine. It's like a peacock on steroids, right? Cause there's a never enough prestige, right? And then there's the external police forces, the ones that beat and brutalize the women who were striking for fair wages and that are willing to engage, engage in this sort of like spectacular act of violence against Black people because it's more than just about the economy. It's about a kind of existential whiteness that has to be reproduced through violence. Right. So, you know, how we, how feminism, women are our allies when they work as our allies. Feminism, if it gets caught into a container and begins to reproduce itself, alienated from our labor and our desires. And I'm not, a, you know, I'm a white collar worker. So I didn't have to go through the pandemic the way other people did, trying to feed their kids and putting themselves at risk. And so the question is, how can you influence bourgeois feminism that doesn't need you once it's cultivated your DNA and your data? So that, you know, that becomes like the struggle, like come back home but what's the incentive if it's going to mean you're going to lose personal power, personal prestige in order to have collective power as black power and as women's power or ungendered power, like for freedom? What you said also like makes me think about international institutions, right? Thinking about when we're thinking about PIMS, also thinking about, you know, institutions like the UN. We have one of those fierce movements, right? We still do have movements that contribute, but the understanding was clear that 
Principal politics were not purity politics, right? That opportunistic endeavors was not going to be part of the recipe. And so the state targeted our political leaders. So the spectacular lynchings 50 years ago were of militant leaders. What we've mobilized around, rightly so, but it's a different motivation today, are the murders, the police killing or lynching a civilian. And so what does that say about our trajectory? And I'm not trying to recreate the past. I don't romanticize the past. You know, I anthologize political prisoners. I understand they've been tortured. They should be out. Nobody wants to be trapped by the state, right? And interred for surplus violence. Not just the violence of being incarcerated, but violence for being a political leader who tried to change the world because they love their people. But there's been a shift that we don't fully analyze, maybe because we're overtaxed and exhausted. And yes, women are doing a lot of the labor, but it's not just women. And there's no way that gender could be the sole driver of the suffering that we endure. If we're afraid of militancy, then I imagine then everything and anything would be radical and revolutionary because they don't have to risk anything. And I'm not talking about militarists. You risk because you love and you can be a pacifist. But what you agree to let go of is prestige and power. But if we believe that prestige and power, the first woman this, the first woman that, is how we will you know, consolidate gains for our community, then we're actually deceiving ourselves. And we might as well just say, I'm a capitalist or want to be capitalist or whatever, and I'm here to accumulate. And that brings a certain kind of nihilism and alienation. But that's more honest than to say, I'm doing this for you. And you should just stand in line and wait until uh, whatever trickles down, which is not wealth. That's not what's trickling down to the masses of Black and Indigenous and working and laboring people. My question is, what are the anti-imperialist responsibilities for Black feminists who want to take a turn from liberal or radical Black feminisms towards revolutionary Black feminism? I would say AFRICOM would be central for us to address how that began under George W. Bush and then was accelerated under Obama. There is a publication, I try to read diverse publications. There's one from military personnel called War Horse. I don't always agree with their political critiques, but since they're former military, they actually know what they're, they were there, okay? That's the short version. So this dumping of weaponry and militarization in Africa that has led to more civilian deaths under the guise of stopping, you know, terrorism or ISIS. I mean, we have to be involved in foreign policy because U.S. foreign policy is imperialist, it's racist, and it's capitalist. So it's just the flip side of the coin of U.S. domestic policy. And there's no way that you could wrestle with one side of the coin and pretend like the other side of the coin isn't existing, right? That it does not exist, that it's not going to be a problem. And there's slippage. I mean, they, they mill together. Like former military joined the local police forces. Former military joined Eric Prince's mercenary army. 
and what we're against, which is rape, starving children, dislocation, mass migration, flight from war, right? And in, sla- in different forms of slavery means we're against war. At the same time, we are war resistors because inevitably when we build that chaos, that you know, surveillance, that disruption, destabilization, that will come to us. And I think this is part of what I was saying about our needing to build communities where exhaustion is not our defining characteristic, but also where a kind of self-deception is also not a defining characteristic. I think of the captive maternal in four stages. They're multiples, right? The first is a stage of the caretaker. Like your parents wanted you to succeed. I've said this before. So you have to go to these schools that are not really functional. You have to get good grades, even if you're taught ideology that is really not in the interest of workers or black people or women or LGBTQ communities. But the compromise is that first level. Sometimes we know we're being compromised and we're conflicted. Sometimes people are celebratory, like, look, I made it, you know, in the pecking order. The second stage is the protest. Like, you're like, I'm done. I did everything I was told. I deferred. I like, I was a good negress, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this clearly is not working. And some people like reach the second stage late in life, like, I got into the right college, or I got the right job, I'm at the highest of my game, and I'm alienated from my own labor, but also more painfully, or equally painfully, I am alienated from my people, right? And from that protest, you can move into a maroon stage where we build freedom schools, the mutual aid, right? Where we return to community and have the humility to not think we're gonna leave but there, there is collective leadership. But when you have that maroon stage, and I would say the Black Panthers, and her, you know the women were central in building that organization, when they had the maroon stage, that's when the FBI and the police came for them and brought war, right? And so then you become war resistors, war survivors, and then we do it again. If this is a kind of dialectic, maybe it's a spiral that's going somewhere. If we cannot track the trajectory in history, that's okay. We can track it in our hearts. In terms of the gender, this is the 50th anniversary of the Attica Rebellion. And even though they weren't all men, they were imprisoned as such in a quote male's prison, they went through, in my mind, those four stages. They were the trustees. They stabilized the prison by caring for each other when they were sick by loving each other, by singing to each other, by feeding each other, by stabilizing the prison with their labor, 13th Amendment. Then they decided we're human, we're not slaves, they move into a protest. They move from that stage to taking over the prison and creating a maroon society within the prison walls. They have political education, they have food distribution, they have medic, they have counseling, they have culture in their rebellion. And then Richard Nixon as president, Governor Rockefeller of New York, agreed that a human rights struggle is a declaration of war against the empire. 
And so they come in with the National Guard. And they're killed, they're tortured, and later some scholars would argue they're killed after the retaking because it's a death sentence to be a rebel. But those cycles are never destroyed. I would argue these are the life cycles. And you can put different labels on them, you can move them around, doesn't matter. The point is that we continue to exist because we've always fought. And now we need to figure out collectively what is the integrity of our resistance. I think that's a really um, important question that really leads me to my next question. With that in mind, speak, thinking about the captive maternal and you know the movement space that Swami and I like have worked have worked in is the reproductive justice movement space, right? Where uh, RJ is defined or really captured within its four tenets: the first being the right to have a child, the second being the right to not have a child. The third being the right to raise our children in safe and sustainable communities without fear or threat of uh, threat from individuals or the state. And then the right to have access to bodily autonomy, right? Um, and so these are some of the things that really came up for me as it relates to the captive maternal. And because we're in a time now where there is a lot of money being funneled into like electoral politics and uh, increasing focus on policy solutions to address the issues um, that folks are facing and that R RJ is equipped to address. Um, I'm curious about how we might reorient ourselves to the needs of children and youth in a way that does not reify harmful systems, institutions, and practices. That's a great and complicated question, right, which I can't, you know, completely or competently answer. But I mean, it's a hard one. Like, you have kids, you want them to survive. Mm -hmm. But then when I look at our movements, they tend to be sparked by the inversion of time, right? That your children are supposed to bury you, mm -hmm. and then you Emmett Till, and you end up burying your children. I mean, then time doesn't work for us anymore. Your children are supposed to outlive you. Right. I mean, this is the greatest gift. And they don't have to be your biological children. They just, anybody, everybody's children, right? But in a society that has built itself on predation, genocide, enslavement, torture, mass rape to accumulate three-fifths, you know, as Britain said, Thomas Jefferson, every child Sally Hemings has, you know, by him, is building his political career. So he can win the presidency with the Electoral College. You know, Southern plantation presidents dominate in a certain era. So if we're not gullible about the democracy, its origin story, I don't think we could be gullible about its present manifestations and its future trajectory. See, the thing I've learned from mothers who've lost children, like from the Chicago mothers, whose children, their sons were killed by police, CPD, or I've met some whose sons were tortured into false confessions, or mothers I've met in Colombia, or mothers I've met in Brazil. It's like that loss is so disintegrating that you're reborn as some other kind of militant. And that it shouldn't take that, right? I mean, nobody should lose a child, but inevitably disease. But losing it from predatory police forces, from lynching, that's just insult on top of vulnerability. And that disintegration didn't mean that they gave up. It's just mean they were reborn through the death of a child into another kind of political being. 
I haven't met mothers who's you know, like in Brazil who've been offered like we could name a scholarship program after your son or a basketball program at night or whatever. And, you know, their intellectual handlers would say, come out, like have some water, take some aspirin, go back in and negotiate the terms that the state gives you. And the mothers have gone back in and just said what they said before, resurrect the dead child. Only a God can bring back, right, the deceased. And so the state postures as if it has God-like powers, but it doesn't really have the power of life. It just has the technology of death. So if we're not gullible about that, then the only thing left for us is love and revolutionary struggle. You know, I'm saying this way, by collar, you know, steady job, whatever. Um, and I still get paid. I can say, and then tomorrow they still have to pay me. But there are people who are much more vulnerable and who are closer to the loss of the child and fall into a disarray that maybe they rematerialize like George and Jonathan Jackson's mother did, Mrs. Georgia Bia Jackson, or maybe they just disappear in, into like depression. I don't know. But if we were to hold the state accountable, we would have to be reborn as something other than we currently are as black feminists. And as much as I love my black sisters and everything I've learned from feminism, it does not have the capacity to deliver as it's currently constructed to deliver what we need, which is freedom, not trickle down panaceas or policies. Dr. Joy James was interviewed by Jalessa T. Jackson and Salome Ayuak of the Decolonial Feminist Collective. Around the turn of the 21st century, Great Britain began a wave of deportations of black residents with roots in Jamaica and other former colonies in the Caribbean. Luke de Noronha, a writer who teaches at the University of Manchester, is author of the book, Deporting Black Britons, Portraits of Deportation to Jamaica. According to de Noronha, the British government claims it is only ridding itself of foreign criminals. My focus in the book is groups that arrived in the UK around the turn of the 20th, of the, into the 21st century, around 2000, the late 90s. And they were deported, as you say, after being criminalised. So they were defined as, in the UK policy and political discourse, as foreign criminals or foreign national offenders. In the US, I think you have criminal aliens or whichever term is used to demonise a group of people who are criminalized, both criminalized and lack citizenship. And that was the kind of focus of my project to meet people who spent most of their lives as children in the UK and were deported after criminal conviction and now live in Jamaica. And I gather that a fundamental problem with accepting the legitimacy of those grounds for expulsion is that there is an assumption of black criminality, an assumption that is shared by a large portion of white Brits. Exactly, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's well put. I think the, the kind of racism, institutional racism, as, as, as it's called here, of the criminal justice system every, at every stage, which will be, of course, very familiar to a North American audience, has its own kind of dynamics here, but a lot of similarities with the heavy criminalization, heavy policing of of young black men in particular, and means that those who end up being uh, criminalized and therefore end up being propelled towards deportation are really 
in many important ways the victims of structural racism and state racism and that of course plays into who ends up being separated from loved ones mm -hmm. by being kind of you know deported in a way to prison by being exiled to prison or then subsequently being exiled to an unfamiliar homeland so so exactly as you say that the, the racism of, of the society and of the state institutions really has a big part in all of the stories of the people I came to know. Yes, but the problem, of course, for the movement is that if the only gripe is about racism, then that connotes an exception of all the other aspects and history of Great Britain's relationship with the people it colonized. Yeah, that's true. And I suppose that the one part of the puzzle, an important part of the puzzle, is the racism of the, of the police and the criminal justice system. A longer part of the story is, of course, the very history of the modern world, which led us to these particular nation states, very unequal nation states, particular relationships between, you know, the former metropole and the former colony. And that, that affects, of course, people in the Caribbean, but also people on the African continent, people in South Asia, people in the Middle East. And so all these relationships are really important. And you can see the way that history eats into the present, to borrow a phrase from Stuart Hall, in the detention centers and deportation flights that this country regularly engages in. There is a way of looking at this in which it is Great Britain uh, that has committed the great crime over centuries against millions of people, and including the folks in the Caribbean, and yet the great criminal reserves for itself the right to say who is the criminal and who deserves to come and stay in Great Britain. That's exactly right and well put. And I think this is a wider problem, of course, we have with the lack of accountability for state violence and for historical wrongdoing on a world-making scale. And instead, of course, we have the demonization of individual criminals seem to be morally failing in some way, which of course obscures the real reasons why some people end up finding themselves in, you know, situations where they're criminalized. That's, you know, that's my argument in the book. And it's one that you put well with thinking about Great Britain as the, as the biggest criminal. I like that way of describing things. And when the situation is portrayed of one of criminality or innocence of criminality, the whole argument then becomes one about worthiness to be a citizen of Britain, which then indicates that those who are petitioning to be allowed to stay have to speak up their decency and worthiness and all these attributes that most white Britons don't have. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of good migrant, bad migrant dynamic which you see uh, in all, really in all kind of imperial countries in the global north and in the UK that has a particular flavor that, I, that I'm trying to talk to. But yeah, definitely. And, and of course, the migrant has to make a defense, whether a legal defense or a political campaign, which often forces them to prove their, exactly as you say, worthiness or their belonging or their contribution. And many of the arguments from kind of liberal centrists revolve around saying, you know, migrants contribute, they pay in more than they take out, they do important jobs and all of this kinds of all these kinds of things. But then we lose the structural racism and of course the imperial history and the very legitimacy of Britain as a bordered nation state, an island nation state that apparently has, you know, the legitimacy to 
control its borders and exclude the formerly colonized. And we accept all that when we when we buy into a kind of, oh no, I've been put in the wrong box. You know, I'm I'm really one of the one of the good ones, or I've really contributed, or I'm really a decent person or a decent family member. And and that's that's really a difficult bind. And it's one that for criminalized people is incredibly hard to fulfill. And that's partly why I wanted to focus on this group rather than on a group that could be folded into a story about Britain as a individuals as deserving or Britain as a welcoming and fair and tolerant place. I wanted to say the opposite by focusing on, you know, the most demonized archetypal bad migrants. And you speak of how race gets made and remade in these colonial relationships. Could you explain what you mean? Yeah, well, I suppose there's, there's a lot of ways we could pass race at different scales. But if we think about race as what has been a global system for the management of unequal populations, which differentiates people in space and in law and says uh, that different groups of humanity are deserving of different things and belong in particular places, then immigration controls at a global scale continue to make and remake those colonially forged racial hierarchies. So I kind of make the argument that for people in the Caribbean, for people in the Jamaican context, it's borders which really are central to kind of reproducing the feeling and the afterlives of slavery, particularly, you know, the free movement of people and of tourists, the uh, extraction of resources like aluminium or the extractive relationships around single, you know, commodities, coffee, bananas, whatever it might be, owned by companies that have colonial histories. So that there's a, the movement of people and things in very uneven ways is one of the ways in which racialized global relations get made and remade. And then, of course, in the context of the UK, the policing of who is allowed to move around public space, what legal categories people have, who can be detained and separated from their families. Uh, all of these really you know, resonate in uncomfortable ways with uh, longer histories of race and racism. And I think that they're, they're immediately audible in the stories of the people who now live in exile in Jamaica, who I call Black Britons. And you're saying that if we want to get away from these arguments about who is worthy to be in Britain and who is a decent law-abiding citizen and who is not, we could look to the prison abolition movement and its arguments about the nature of the state. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think there's a few things that are so hopeful and, and the reason they're resonating across borders about the about the prison abolitionist movement there are various threads we could pull on but one of course is the disavowal of the desire for innocence you know that, that we shouldn't make arguments for people's right not to be subject to torture which is effectively what prison has been described as by some abolitionists rightly so people shouldn't have to prove their innocence to avoid that form of torture and that we should try and build ways of relating to one another and ways of organizing society which don't reach for punishment and don't reach for expulsion and exclusion, but which look for real transformation and, and justice and working through, often at a community level. One of the things that's so important is it centers the forms of state violence, which are most grotesque, and tries to make them central to a wider socialist or left-wing analysis. I think that's where I find abolition most important, thinking of Ruthie Gilmore's work on the prison in California and how that can be transposed to thinking about geographies of racial capitalism and thinking about ways out of that, radical emancipatory ways out of that. And I think 
one of the things I'm very invested in is taking some of those insights and wisdom from prison abolition and thinking about them in relation to borders, seeing how they work, how they need to be transposed or elaborated, and trying to think with abolition at a kind of global scale about some of these relations, precisely as you point to, between a country like Britain and its many former colonies, its place in the world, you know, Europe's place in the world and how Europe's border regime works, and thinking about an approach against punitive state violence and for justice, freedom, and of course, centrally, people's freedom within that um, hopeful and revolutionary kind of framework. Yes, you seem to be saying that the whole concept uh, and practice of citizenship as it has evolved in the imperial countries has become what you call part of the management of colonially partitioned populations. Mm. That is the dividing line between those who are worthy of Britain or French or U.S. citizenship mm. Mm. and those who are not. Exactly. And I think this is, you know, this is an insight I took from a scholar called Barry Hindus and his really helpful work on citizenship. But the point is, again, I'll, I'll return to the kind of liberal or centrist, or, but mainly, mainly liberal framing of what citizenship is and what it means, tends to focus on the relationship between citizens and a state and between citizens and other citizens, and then to come up with these sets of normative ideas about how we should relate to one another and what obligations you have and the social contract and all of this kind of stuff. Now, citizenship looks very different when you think about it globally, about the relationship between different citizenships. Uh, when you think about the passports of the Ugandan national as against the, the Luxembourgian or the German national and which ones grant which kinds of free access to movement and visa-free travel and all of that. And you start to think about hierarchy of citizenships. You start to think about zones of free movement, places where you know it's easier to travel and work between often the white settler states, for example, or, and, the, and the UK. And then you think about other kind of passports and what they need in global context. And then the, the concept of citizenship suddenly becomes uh, saturated by global relationships, uneven relationships, and historical relationships. And that's really where the starting point is for thinking about citizenship as reproducing and reconfiguring, you know, and managing colonially partitioned populations, as you quote. And I think that's just a really different starting point then to thinking about what citizenship is supposed to point us to, which is, you know, politics, justice, participation, inclusion, all of these terms that, that get bandied around, around in the kind of fluffy discussions of citizenship and often very, you know, nationalistic notions of citizenship and i'm trying to unsettle all that with a global frame with an anti-colonial frame really yes you get this bizarre situation with the united states for example wherein people with the least chance of claiming a right to be in the united states tend to come from countries where the united states has done the most damage and may be continuing to do damage like iraq Right, exactly. And of course, there's a, yeah, no, I mean, my, my reading on the US also includes people in that situation from the Caribbean, but also from, you know, the Latin, Central and Latin America places that have been subject to US imperialism in the late 20th century and CIA involvement and CIA inspired coups and all of that. And, and so you have the El Salvadorians and Guatemalans, Nicaraguans, Hondurans, and all of these. Groups who, again, are trying to are really struggling to claim just basic dignity and rights, freedom from 
ICE raids and deportations and detentions at the border and separation of parents and children and all of this really cruel and brutal spectacles of kind of racialized violence that seem to be just totally central to the way borders work at the moment and not only in the the US and the UK and, and, and you mentioned France and other countries in Europe but of course in Australia too and in different way in countries in the Gulf and in Saudi Arabia. So this is really a kind of global nightmare and one that for me, should be central to anti-racist, left, socialist, global justice politics. In this Brexit controversy, we see large proportions of Black Britons and Britons from elsewhere in the non-white world becoming quite nervous about this whole process and who's behind it in terms of their own security within the confines of Britain. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Brexit's been really central to the story as I've been writing the book because you know, I started doing the research in 2015 and 2016, the, the UK votes to leave the European Union. But a complex story, of course, what effectively is happening is 3 million people who are EU nationals are going to lose rights. And some of those EU nationals themselves will find it easy enough to register and gain a kind of status that's fairly secure. Some won't. And we have to remember as well that not all EU nationals are white. Of course, there's questions about the racialization of Roma and of some people from Eastern Europe. But then there are also black and brown European nationals, Dutch Somalis, West African French nationals, who again are, are vulnerable to losing their rights. So let's, let's start there with the fact that the loss of rights for the EU nationals is no good thing for anyone. And I think people from, from without Europe, people from non-European states who are already subject to a harsher and more hostile immigration regime, very much know that politics of ridding Britain of foreign interference and of getting away from the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on Human Rights, none of that bodes well for racialized people who are trying to stand up for their rights, be able to stay with family and loved ones, or be able to hold the state to account. So it's, a, it's really been a worrying time for even, even as a liberal, even if you were a liberal and your main concern is for you know, access to justice and an independent judiciary, there's some scary things going on. At the moment in the UK, uh, you know, Priti Patel, who is our Home Secretary and is a kind of cartoonishly evil Home Secretary, who's in charge of the immigration police authorities, is promising to, to try and stop migrants, a small number of asylum-seeking migrants arriving by boat from places like Yemen, who've travelled from ultimately from Yemen and come by France. And she's promising to build floating borders in the sea and process asylum claims on ferries or in the South Atlantic. And all of this as a figure of, you know, the migrant as the kind of invader and really, really is starting to stimulate a far right white nationalist politics that will be only too familiar to a North American audience. And, and we're seeing white nationalists protesting outside army barracks and detention camps and hotels where asylum seekers are being accommodated. So a really scary time and one which Brexit has, has been only one key moment in, but in a longer kind of racist authoritarian politics in which the figure of the criminal migrant is, has been absolutely central. So this is where, this is the larger kind of conjuncture in British politics and into which the stories of deportation fit. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.